This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Also, make sure to check out and subscribe to our YouTube original channel, UCTV Prime, available only on YouTube at youtube.com slash UCTV Prime. This UCTV podcast is sponsored in part by Audible.com, your destination for the widest selection of digital audiobooks available, including many by guests you've heard here on UCTV. Audible.com is offering UCTV podcast listeners a free 30-day trial subscription and one free audiobook download. Just visit audibletrial.com slash UCTV to sign up. That's audibletrial.com slash UCTV. And thanks. So great to be here this afternoon, and I'd like to also thank Leslie and Margaret for inviting me. It's a, it's a thrill to be here and to hear all these great papers today. Uh, so um, I'm going to talk about uh, my favorite period of human evolution, that is the Holocene. It's oftentimes ignored. I don't know why, because it uh, has all kinds of data and many more skeletons than, say, in the early Pleistocene, right, Peter? Uh, and But all that aside, I'd like to just introduce my talk by saying that uh, agriculture is one of the most important developments in human evolution. Uh, right up there with bipedality, uh, cooking, uh, uh, speech. I think it's one of, the, one of the hallmarks of what we are today. What we see in living humans uh, is very much a product of the whole history of human evolution and including uh, what takes place in the Holocene. So where did it all start? Uh, well, when is about 10 to 12,000 years ago, uh, where is kind of everywhere. Uh, it's in at least 10 to, le- 10 to a dozen independent centers. It's uh, taking place in North America, South America, uh, uh, Europe, Asia, Polynesia, all within a very short period of time. And sometimes when I talk to archaeologists about what is short uh, in terms of time period, uh, some regard that is a long time when you look at the fact that Humans and human ancestors have been around for a good seven, eight million years, give or take. Uh, 10,000 years is really quite a small piece of the whole uh, picture. So this brings me to our central question today, uh, in my talk anyway. What were the costs and benefits of the global shift in diet from hunting and gathering to agriculture? That's the real crux of the biscuit here in terms of what we're trying to figure out with, with the Holocene. The answer to that question is important because it helps explain what is human today. We have all the other parts, pieces of bipedality, speech, and so forth, but the impact of agriculture plays a huge role in defining what we look at, look like, what we do in our various activities. So let's kind of look at this from the perspective of the common perception. Uh, That is, if we went out here on campus and asked you know, was agriculture a good thing or not? Uh, I would say that the, the, the consensus among the public is that farming fueled an improvement in the human condition, no doubt. So on life before agriculture, it was a savage existence, following animals just to kill them to eat or moving from one berry patch to another and living just like an animal. 
Agriculture was the great leap forward. The advance that catapulted us out of the hand-to-mouth day-to-day existence of hunter-gatherers and into the complex, cultured, literate existence of modern human beings. And finally, there's a bunch more, but I picked three. Domestication allowed for diverse food choices, emphasizing here diverse. Rather than spending the majority of time simply searching for food, human beings were able to build complex societies, eventually leading to the development of civilization. So I think that kind of summarizes uh, the, the general picture. So what's the evidence? Well, uh, one line is, of evidence is looking at uh, nutrition. And we heard a lot of good stuff today about nutritional aspects of starches and protein and so forth. But uh, the nutritional record predicts one story, that is, uh, focus on domesticated cereals predicts poor nutrition and poor health outcomes. Domesticated plants are, are deficient in one or more essential amino acids, lysine for maize, millet, and wheat. None of the common domesticated cereals have adequate iron, calcium, or zinc. Uh, They're all deficient in one or more vitamins, B1, B2, B12, uh, C. Uh, There are clear links with malnutrition, poor growth, immunosuppression, and susceptibility to a variety of pathogens. And finally, from the nutritional record, uh, cereal grains are carbohydrates promoting tooth decay, dental caries, and gum disease, uh, gingivitis. So the nutritional perspective would predict something different from the, the common perspective. So what I'm going to talk about for the remainder of my, my discussion here is the record from uh, looking at large samples of human remains globally, uh, that is uh, the bioarchaeological perspective. Uh, so just to emphasize that the real revolution in understanding past diets, I think, is with stable isotope analysis particularly look at the ratio of C13 to C12. And, but just to reemphasize, it's a very important part of our understanding of past diets. For, the, for those interested, it's, uh, the values are measured in parts per thousand, so it's a very tiny little uh, measurement, but nevertheless important. Measuring different, different types of, of uh, plants consumed, either C3 or C4, with uh, maize here, uh, is a C4 plant that uh, dominated in many areas of, of the globe. So there are a wide variety of regional patterns in terms of dietary change in the, in the Holocene uh, regarding agriculture. Some of the best record is from North America, eastern North America, showing the very negative values there on the y-axis referred to uh, populations eating no maize is negative minus tw- uh, 25. At the top there on the y-axis is a minus 5, where they're eating, uh, where their diet is dominated by maize. And if you look at the last four or 5,000 years of occupation of eastern North America, uh, we see no maize consumption until about A.D. 800 to 1,000, and then that food source takes off in a huge way, very, very dramatic change in diet. And this mirrors, I think, a lot of places in the world with regard to other domesticated plants in terms of rice, uh, uh, barley, rye, and so forth. But this is just one well-studied region showing these dietary changes. And to kind of telescope down even further, uh, this is work that I've been doing with Margaret for the last uh, several decades, I hate to say that, but that's true. And this is one part of our long-term study 
showing uh, the dramatic changes on a very local scale where early prehistoric populations, that is pre-AD uh, 1150, uh, no maize go to, going to late prehistoric populations, later prehistory, uh, increased consumption of maize. And then finally, during the colonial period and um, the, the mission period, there is a huge focus on, ma- on maize and diet. Uh, so much so that it's probably 80 or 90 percent of, of their dietary consumption. Uh, so those, those, that graph showing going from highly negative to less negative illustrates, even at the local level, what's taking place. And, of course, we heard today about the use of microware. I kind of like these images. Um, these are the old traditional way of looking at microware. But it illustrates the, uh, the big differences here in diet between uh, foragers, hunter-gatherers, and farmers within the same general region showing lots of pits and fissures and so forth on your left reflecting a hard coarse diet and these farmers eating soft porridges and corn mushes. So what, what else did agriculture do? Well, basically it fueled the, the population explosion of the Holocene uh, shown in this, in this graph where population begins to take off with uh, uh, in the early Holocene, with with uh, farming, and uh, accelerates to the to the to the present, where uh, we're looking at uh, soon a, po- a global population of eight billion people. Agriculture did uh, that in large part. Uh, agriculture leads to large and densely settled communities. What what's important about that? Uh, at for example, these two places, Chetelhuyuk in Southwest Asia, and Cahokia in Eastern North America is it changes the whole dynamic of population placement, population location, where people are now living in close, crowded living conditions, uh, literally on top of each other, um, and those conditions setting up uh, an environment for the origin and spread of infectious disease, another important part of human evolution. So let's look at some some outcomes briefly here. One of the most important, I think, is the rise in competition with more people, social conflict and warfare, which are important in terms of contributing to highly elevated stress rates and mortality. Another critical outcome, I think, is in terms of fundamental changes in activity and lifestyle, indicating a general pattern of workload in the Holocene relative to earlier populations. Now, in the 70s, as we all know, the classic work done on uh, the Khoisan uh, depicted hunter-gatherers as, as a life of leisure. and We, of course, know that that's, that's not the case, but it's a testable hypothesis looking at the bioarchaeological record. And so work that I've been doing with Chris Ruff also for several decades is looking at the biomechanical record in terms of Holocene human evolution, this foraging to farming transition. And basically what we see in hunter-gatherers is more bone, more widely distributed uh, in cross-section compared to agriculturalists reflecting a decline in workload, a decline in mechanical loading, and therefore less bone. In part, this is mitigated by dietary changes, uh, the foraging to farming transition uh, as we saw in the nutritional studies, is not a good one. So part of this is diet, but I think a large part of it is activity. And this, is, this record is also revealed in looking at osteoarthritis, uh, shown in the, the image there. All the, the extra bone along the margins of the vertebra reflect uh, activity and activity loading on the back. 
And we're finding that in general, as a very general pattern, there's a reduction in osteoarthritis with the transition from foraging to farming. Lots of exceptions to that, but as a general pattern, it fits the biomechanical record. A third important outcome, uh, we know that humans have cooked their food for at least the last 300 to 400,000 years. Um, and so it's a, it's a long-term uh, presence in, in human nutrition. But really a big impact, a big factor here is the invention of ceramics in the, in the Neolithic and cooking vessels to produce softer, uh, easier chewed foods. What impact does that have? Well, there's a nutritional content to it. Um, making the, the starch more available in terms of nutrition. Um, but it also had a fundamental change and in, in result in craniofacial growth and development, resulting basically in considerable reduction in robustity of the face and jaws, uh, increased uh, occlusal abnormalities, that is uh, especially increased tooth crowding as the jaws and size of the face reduced, but the teeth Teeth also reduced, but not nearly at the same rate. So that's a huge part of the story as well in terms of the agricultural transition. Fundamental changes in the craniofacial architecture owing to the changes in chewing. Another huge outcome of this, uh, just not to belabor the case, but another important outcome is increased disease load. And one of the most common diseases today, as it was beginning with agriculture, is dental caries and poor oral health, showing there in the, the images on your left, an individual with uh, rampant dental caries and individual on the right uh, obviously did not floss his teeth. Uh, so it's all about not only the food, but also hygiene. And of course, uh, hygiene was, was not nearly what we, what we have today. But the graph there shows uh, the three bars on, the, on your left uh, showing the foragers and the uh, lack of uh, maize consumption. So no dental caries or very little, and then rapid increase in dental caries in later uh, prehistoric populations, mirroring uh, beautifully the isotope record in terms of dietary change. And another development, of course, that we're all familiar with is, is infectious disease. This really took off, infectious diseases really took off in the Holocene with the agricultural transition. And if you look there in the upper, your upper left, there's a, a bone showing a bunch of bumps and grooves, and that's a osteoperistitis. It's a nonspecific infection. We don't know what caused it, but it is all over the place globally when it is absent uh, prior to the agricultural revolution. Uh, also shown there is a, a, a new developing disease, tuberculosis, and on the bottom, treponemal disease, both uh, venereal and non-venereal syphilis globally. And related to this are, are what happens when water sources become contaminated in these close, crowded living conditions, and it sets up a perfect environment for uh, par parasites and parasitic infection. And what you see in uh, your, your lower right there is the skeletal evidence in the, in the, in the fossil record, that is the Holocene fossil record, of what's called crib orbitalia, which is the outcome of iron deficiency anemia. So parasites uh, contribute to reduced absorption of iron from diets that are, that are already iron poor. And resulting from, from this sort of uh, agglomeration of poor diets, uh, parasitic infections, and so forth, 
is developmental arrest, and which is beautifully illustrated in this individual showing enamel hypoplasia. Um, and that is, if you look carefully at the teeth here, see the lines up there on the teeth. There are several on the central uh, incisors, and uh, this reflects where the individual, the, the teeth stopped growing. The individual recovered the stress. They started, the teeth started growing again, and uh, then another stress episode happens. Uh, these two are, these are also quite frequent in the Holocene and relatively infrequent, uh, except in Neanderthals, maybe, um, in, in the Pleistocene. This, this lays the, the context for today's world. Uh, from relatively benign changes, or this little girl's got braces on her teeth, owing to parents saying, your teeth are too crowded, reflecting reduced bone in her jaws, to more consequential changes. The agricultural transition is a long process. We're still experiencing it today. This graph shows a study we're doing in Europe on about 10,000 uh, historic and antiquity-aged uh, uh, Europeans showing a big spike and increase in dental caries in the late medieval period, and an example of what caries looks like in these, in these populations. And also it laid the foundation for uh, epidemics of the pre-modern world. The plague population size reaches a point where a population is fueled by agriculture, and it reaches a size where plague has a heyday. And in the modern world, the appearance of new and nasty viruses, HIV and Ebola, uh, it's not that agriculture, agriculture created these viruses or had, uh, had an influence except to say that the, that the deteriorating population conditions are an important element for their, their rise. And finally, the obesity epidemic that we heard a little bit about before, this is fueled also indirectly by the agricultural revolution. So just to sum up, uh, farming puts into place an ongoing long-term process facilitating poor nutrition and health outcomes. There are enormous health costs both in the past and today owing to this transition. There are fundamental changes in activity and lifestyle, and it is a central element for what we are today is a biological organism. So just to wrap up my talk, I'll leave you with one question here. How will society mitigate the circumstances put into play over 10,000 years ago. Thank you. I'm so very, very happy to be here uh, because all of you are here. So let me get started. First, I want to tell you uh, how to get to Loughborough University, because nobody knows, nobody knows where it is. I just put it into Google Maps, and this is what came up. So you're going to drive from San Diego, I guess, to Seattle. Uh, you have to take some um, boats. Um, you can stop in uh, Japan, and then you have to cross all that territory where Neanderthals and others used to live. And eventually, you'll get to Loughborough, which is 20 miles south of uh, Nottingham. But obviously, it is the center of the universe. There's a little place called London there. And here's just a shot of what Loughborough University looks like. Uh, I'm obviously not from Loughborough. I grew up in Philadelphia. And we've, we've been living there for six years now. If, if I could pronounce it correctly, I would say Loughborough. Loughborough. Okay. So our ancestors of 30,000 years ago 
were about this tall, and we're about that tall today as well, at least people in the rich countries like uh, this Australian, five foot ten and a half, five foot ten and a half. By 5,000 um, or 7,000 years ago with agriculture, heights begin to drop. And then Roman soldiers even shorter, middle-aged peasants, as Clark Larson was saying, even worse, a health. And we're using height here as an indication of population health. When the entire height of a population changes going down, that's an indication that there's worse nutrition, more infection, all those problems that Clark Larson just talked about. Some people have recovered in the 20th and 21st century in the rich nations, but not all people have recovered. My uh, title is Globalization, and I, f I find these things you know, on Google Images. You can search for them as well. So here, here we have one view of the world today, which has become globalized by uh, multinational corporations. One definition of globalization is the process of international integration of economies, but more than economies, of whole ways of thinking and behaving. That international integration arising from the interchange of worldviews, products, and ideas. And as you can see from this map, very often it's worldviews, products, and ideas that come from one particular part of the world, the rich world, that are imposed on the rest of the world. My talk today, I also want to get into the meaning that food has for people. Food has tremendous meaning that goes beyond just filling our bellies and uh, providing our nutritional requirements. We've just celebrated one meaningful event, at least in this part of the world, Thanksgiving. So this Norman Rockwell uh, painting, the image of it, uh, uh, conveys a great deal of meaning. Here's another kind of meaning. I picked uh, this because this is Jimmy Smith, the greatest jazz organist that has ever lived. But he's, this is a, an album from the 1950s, The Incredible Jimmy Smith Home Cooking. He's standing in front of a kind of soul food restaurant, food served at all times. But, of course, the images are drink Coca-Cola, drink Coca-Cola. Some seven up, but drink Coca-Cola. If there are any litigators here from the Coca-Cola Corporation, please see me after my talk. <laughs> I'll buy you Pepsi and we'll uh, sort things out. I am going to pick on Coca-Cola, but they deserve it. So that, that meaning, you know, it was in World War II that the Coca-Cola Corporation and the U.S. military worked together to create a home feeling for our troops overseas. And that's still going on today in arenas of uh, warfare where U.S. and U.K. troops are uh, fighting. So we have globalization all over the world today, but I'm going to focus on one place, and that's Mexico. We have a project in uh, the Yucatan of Mexico that is looking at some of the effects of globalization on children's diets. So here's Cozumel and Playa del Carmen and Cancun, and I'm sure you're familiar with those sorts of places. We're working over here in the capital of Yucatan. Yucatan is this state of Mexico here. Uh, Merida, a city of about one million people uh, today. And if you arrive in Merida, you'll see friendly police officers directing traffic, and there's Burger King, and there's Walmart, and uh, every other major US and many European corporations as well. You can find a few uh, trinkets to buy as well. We're working specifically with the Maya people 
of Yucatan. The Maya culture area includes uh, southern Mexico, uh, Guatemala, parts of Belize, and a little bit of El Salvador and Honduras. The Maya today, today, number seven to eight million people. They are the largest Native American ethnic group. But they are also the shortest Native American ethnic group. They have the highest level of what we call stunting, which is very low height for age when we're measuring children. So these are, this is a, a house in, in a, the Maya neighborhood we work in. That's a stone wall and a house with uh, uh, just fabric covering the front of the house. Not all of them are this uh, impoverished. The Maya traditionally sleep on hammocks, do their homework on hammocks, uh, watch television on hammocks. Uh, I like hammocks. Uh, the school children are provided with some uh, food, but they also get these snacks. This gentleman shows up in this vehicle and he gives them snacks. Some are traditional foods that Maya have eaten for hundreds of years, and some are globalized snacks that I'll talk about in a bit. Uh, here's uh, a grandmother and her grandchild. You'll see her again later. And here's uh, one of the children. Uh, those little um, bandage-looking things on their finger are actually uh, electrode pickups. We, in one of our studies, we uh, put a device on the children that measured their heart rates and physical activity to see if they were uh, getting enough or not enough physical activity. This is a picture um, my wife took. Uh, you'll see her in a minute, just the children playing in this abandoned Coca-Cola kiosk. Uh, some of our colleagues, um, Alan Goodman and Thomas Leatherman, have written articles about the coca colonization of the Yucatan. It, it is, it's, it's not the, the uh, drug coke, uh, the, the white powder, but the uh, stuff in bottles, which is just as much a drug, of course. So the, the Coca-Cola symbols are ubiquitous these symbols of, of, of uh, coca colonization. This is a traditional Maya dance which is being performed for locals and tourists. Um, and those trays come from Coca-Cola Corporation. Uh, and there's Coca-Colas on there, not traditional Maya foods, but they're doing a traditional Maya dance. So you have this uh, syncretism between the ancient Maya uh, you know, who are predict uh, some people uh, say they predict the end of the world in just a couple of weeks, but uh, uh, I, I would still send out my Christmas cards. Uh, the world, I don't think, will end on December 21st. And the Maya never believed that either, by the way. But um, a way of life is certainly changing because of the influx of these products from uh, the rich countries. These are Maya men who have just finished a traditional a game, the ball game that the Maya played. And um, they're recreating a ball game, but they're you know, taking the pause that refreshes with Coca-Cola, Coca-Cola, Coca-Cola. And uh, notice their bellies. Fox News Latino says Mexico leads the world in consumption of sugary drinks. Mexico is the biggest consumer of soft drinks in the world. 40% greater than the United States. Come on, people, you have to do your job and start drinking more fizzy drinks. 43 gallons per person in Mexico, only 31 in the United States. Well, 7 out of 10 Mexicans are overweight, according to United Nations surveys. Diabetes is Mexico's number one killer, taking 70,000 lives a year, more than the gangster violence that we hear so much about near the Mexican-U.S. border. 
This is Dr. Inej Vrelisoba, the principal investigator of our project in Merida, and also my wife. Uh, this is the grandmother you saw before, and this is one of the children in our study. We're looking, in the first study that I'll talk about today, we, we looked at mothers and children. And we have a new study with grandmothers, mothers, and children as well. Well, what's going on here? Uh, Dr. Varela Silva is five foot one inches tall. She comes up to my shoulder. The grandmother is four feet eight inches tall. And for an adult woman, that's evidence that she was malnourished when she was growing up. And the child will just say that she is too short for her age. So we have this problem of very short stature. Have the Maya always been this short? Men today average about five foot three inches tall, these Maya men, uh, probably from Guatemala. Uh, but archaeological records, like uh, we've been hearing about in the last few talks, uh, show that uh, Maya averaged about five foot six inches tall with some of the very high status Maya, the priest kings, the ones buried under the big pyramids at Palenque and Tikal, up to five foot ten inches tall. That's common today as well, that the very rich are tall. Well, the Maya have a lot of meaning in the foods they eat. The Maya story of creation is a story of people being created by the divine grandmother of the gods, Shmukane, grinding white and yellow corn nine times, mixing it with water, and from this grease she created fat from the masa, the mixture of, of corn meal itself created the muscle and the bone, and uh, from this the Maya people were born. Maya are people of the corn. This is a contemporary uh, uh, mural in southern Mexico, and you see people coming out of the corn. And they lived by agriculture and by corn during the height of their state uh, society, from 250 AD to about 900 AD. Then Spanish arrived with their steel and their germs, and of course, uh, Maya society was never quite the same. Here are people today making tortillas on the coben, this metal tray over the fire, taking the masa, which is a mixture of corn and um, ash, and limestone, which has been boiled. That processing of the corn enhances its nutritional quality. The Maya never suffered from some of the B vitamin diseases that uh, Clark Larson mentioned because by boiling, by processing the corn um, with a little bit of limestone, they enhance the uh, uh, niacin content, which prevents the disease called pellagra. But when Europeans just took the corn to Europe and didn't process it, pellagra killed thousands and thousands and thousands of people in southern Europe and the south of the United States. So the Maya knew what they were doing. What's happening today in Mexico? This is international trade in Mexico. These data come from the Mexican government. These are the official figures. The orange is imports. The blue is exports. Between 2006, 2011, even today, Mexico is a net importer. Its main export is powdered cocoa with added sugar, you know, to make chocolate milk and things like that. Mexico is the third major um, consumer in the Americas. The United States and Canada are one and two. The most consumed foods in Mexico are bread and tortillas, and it's becoming in that order. 
Tortillas are taking a second place, and we'll see what that, that does to people. Mexican processed food consumption is expected to grow at an average rate of 6.1%. So it's only going to get worse. So Mexican is, Mexico is definitely an, a, a country taking the globalization, not giving it. The success stories, according to the Mexican government, are investments by Ferraro Rocher chocolates. I like them, but they're not particularly nutritious in a balanced diet. And Nestle beverages. Nestle is a Swiss company dominating the beverage market, competing with Coke and Pepsi and others, not just for uh, sweet fizzy drinks, but as nutritional supplements. But why do we need nutritional supplements? Why, why, why do all these companies, Coke, Pepsi, and Nestle, want to improve our health by buy, buying their products? Well, it's because we've switched from t- traditional foods. Mexicans, and Maya in particular, ate corn, processed corn products. The most ubiquitous were tortillas. Tortillas have lots of energy, protein, and fiber, and all these essential nutrients, which if you lack one of these essential nutrients, you will not grow very well. What's replacing them? Sweetbreads or pan dulce. I'm sure you can buy these around here. They are the more desired food. They taste better. And even replacing that is, of course, sliced white bread, Pam Bimbo. Bimbo might be buying Hostess Corporation, which just went bankrupt, the maker of Twinkies. Bimbo is taking over their global domination. And how are they selling it? This is in Guatemala. This is the biggest temple at Tikal. They're saying this is bread for Guatemala. This should replace those tortillas. Well, what's in this stuff? Tortillas I have over here, and here's a whole slew of uh, nutrients. I have in the green here, using a traffic light system, green is good, tortillas have more fiber than anything else. You can see that the sweetbreads without fat or the sweetbreads with fat, lots of calories, some protein, but way too much fat, not enough fiber, not enough folic acid, not enough calcium. In fact, zero if you use unenriched flour. Pan Bimbo has these things because, uh, like Wonder Bread, they add back some of the nutrients that they mill out of the flour when it's processed, but not all of the nutrients. So overall, it's the tortilla that's all in the green. You'd be better off eating tortillas for a balanced diet. But Mexicans, and especially poor Mexicans, are switching away from tortillas. The Mexican National Health Survey of 2006, and I don't have data for the youngest children, but for 12 to 19-year-olds, Energy intake in boys was about 1,900 kilocalories a day. For girls, only 1,600 on average. That's about 77% of their needs. So they're not getting even enough energy. But especially what the Mexican National Health and Nutrition Survey reported was in the southern region, that's Yucatan, and in the lower socioeconomic status, that's the impoverished Maya, they have the lowest intakes of all nutrients, especially vitamin A, folates, iron, zinc, and calcium. So they cannot grow well in height. They're not getting enough total energy, but what they do get, which stays in their body, gets turned to fat. So the net result is very short stature, but increasing overweight in adults and in children, and this is called the nutritional dual burden of being both way too short 
and also overweight. It's the worst possible predictor of health outcomes. So what's happening in globalization and children's nutrition? I found this image on a globalization website that talked about good globalization. And this is supposedly a good image. We're all in it together. But I see this as all these hands from other countries holding up our way of life, not supporting their way of life, which is all covered up down here. I want to thank the team of people that uh, are involved in these studies, including our Mexican colleagues, uh, Federico Dickinson and, and the others are in Merida, as well as academic faculty and graduate students. Uh, if you want to find out more about our work, go to this website, mayaproject.org.uk. We have a photographic art and science exhibit going on right now in Lisbon, Portugal. And here is the website where you can see those photographs, mayaproject.org.uk. And I want to thank all the supporters of our project, Sinvestav in Merida, uh, the Santander Banks have helped us, the Wenner Gren Foundation, uh, thank you, Leslie, has funded uh, our, the research I showed today, and of course, everybody here today. Thank you. I'll be talking about current hunter-gatherer diets today, um, and in particular, I'll be talking about my work among the Hadza hunter-gatherers of Tanzania and East Africa. So the first question that we want to ask is, why study hunter-gatherer diets? So as, as you'll see today, um, there's a wide breadth of data that we'll be covering, and um, I'm responsible for it. For, um, it's, a, it's a very ambitious thing to try to do, is to, to discuss hunter-gatherer diets. So I'm going to do a very brief overview of why we're looking at hunter-gatherer diet composition, and then situate it within the context of the, the symposium today. So all humans share a suite of dietary traits that have been retained over millennia of natural selection um, because of their survival value. Now, how this is operationalized in different populations um, is very different. So you see a lot of variation, which we're going to talk about momentarily. Studying hunter-gatherer diets provide a window by which to view the evolution of the human diet. So hunter-gatherers, I want to say right now before we move forward, um, are not living fossils. They are contemporary modern populations, just like you and I. What makes hunter-gatherers interesting and so relevant for discussions like today is that they practice a subsistence regime that has characterized much of human evolutionary history. And the Hadza in particular, who we'll talk about, the population I work with, live in an area of East Africa that has been characterized by many anthropologists as the crucible of human evolution. So this area um, in which our ancestors evolved. So the fact that they're living this nomadic hunting and gathering lifestyle in an area in which our ancestors did, did evolve and are targeting similar food sources means that they can provide a plausible window into the past. Um, now, of course, there are a lot of caveats on this, which we will talk about further, such as many hunter-gatherer populations today are living in marginalized populations, they're living in marginalized areas of their ancestral territory. In addition, as we will see, they're supplementing their diet with traded and purchased foods as well. So again, um, not living fossils, but definitely a allow us to make plausible predictions. And this becomes increasingly important um, as the Paleolithic diet is uh, ever popular, as Dr. Aiello has shown us. So we're still debating on what this Paleolithic diet consists of. Changes in diet um, composition approximately 2.5 million years ago have been linked with the evolution of many uh, hominin traits, so the hallmarks of human evolution, including the sexual division of labor, prosociality, 
pair bonding, um, and even family formation. So diet is a smoking gun um, in a lot of these scenarios, and it's important when we start thinking about diet composition, and we place so much emphasis on forager diets and what contemporary foragers are eating in this comparative context, to, to think about the breadth and variety. So hunter-gatherer populations from around the world exhibit a wide range of nutritional patterns. So there is no one hunter-gatherer diet, and I think that's one of my take-home messages for today. Uh, they vary according to availability of plant and animal resources, in some coastal areas, you see a lot of fish and shellfish providing significant proportions of the diet, and um, marine resources are um, finally receiving the attention I think that they've deserved. So we're starting to, to really focus more um, on different types of foods rather than the, the age-old debate, the, the meat versus potato debate, which we'll get into. So meat versus tubers as um, the foods in human evolution. In many circumpolar environments, you see higher amounts of meat consumption. This, too, is starting to change uh, as we're getting more nuanced data from Arctic foraging populations. And in fact, some very exciting data is coming out of Yupik hunter-gatherers um, in Alaska, who it turns out might actually be fermenting plant foods um, in the bodies of seals and storing this plant food throughout the year to use for later. So even our assumptions about um, how Arctic foragers kind of ruin the, the sample of hunter-gatherers. So you have a lot of subtropical foragers, and then all of a sudden you have Arctic foragers who are eating all sorts of meat, which kind of right, makes, this, makes the story difficult if we're trying to find universals. Turns out they, too, are eating plant food. Um, it just might be hiding in, in the stomachs of, stomachs of seals <laughs> um, throughout certain seasons. Um, in many subtropical environments, you have an approximate plant-to-animal subsistence ratio, which is about 50-50, and in many populations, you actually see higher plant contributions to diet, so more plants being consumed um, than meat products. So you can see modern hunter-gatherers right here, these little peach-colored circles. So not very many populations left, um, and this is the area which we're going to be moving into. So today I'm going to report um, diet composition data for the Hadza foragers of Tanzania. Um, I'm going to do some nutritional chemistry results here. We're going to actually talk about nutrient composition, fat, protein, sugar, fiber, and energy for plant foods. I'll tell you why this is important and why you should care about these in a moment. Um, the percent of contribution to diet by food type, comparison and discussion of some of the big foods, meat, tubers, and honey, and implications for models of the evolution of the hominin diet. So what Hadza dietary reconstruction can tell us about human evolution, what we should take away I've worked among the Hadza since 2004. Um, diet composition and nutrition in general is one of my research foci. I'm particularly interested in the ways in which food acquisition, foraging behavior, and food distribution um, affect many parameters of social behavior. And I'm interested in the evolution of how all of these things come together to tell the human story. Today we're going to be talking about diet exclusively. Um, and diet is very important because diet has, again, as I said before, been implicated with all of these social behaviors and these changes in human evolution. So let's get a handle on what we're talking about. So first I'll give you a background into the Hadza. The Hadza, um, there's approximately 1,000 individuals who identify as Hadza. Of these 1,000 individuals, approximately 300 hunt and gather. I go back and forth because every year that I go back, the number is declining. So um, this summer, as of this summer, it was a little over 200, um, but we still have many who are practicing hunting and gathering for a substantial portion of their diet. So um, we'll leave the number at 300 for now, but it's on the decline. The data that you'll see today um, were taken from camps in which uh, they were collecting over 90% of their food from, 90% um, of their diet from wild foods. 
So there are many Hadza that are living in the villages or on the periphery of villages, and they have a, a much more mixed subsistence regime. They live in northern Tanzania on the shores of the alkaline Lake, lake Yasi. Camp membership is very fluid and, as we'll see momentarily, really changes, um, changes composition in terms of seasonality. So wet season composition and dry season composition are very different, and this has substantial effects on diet composition. Um, and diet composition, in turn, has substantial effects on social relationships and social arrangement and camp composition during this time. Camp size um, does fluctuate with seasonality, and we'll see that. Here's just a quick, um, a quick view of the field site. So this is Lake Yasi. And the research area that I tend to focus on is on the west side of Lake Yasi, although I have done work on the east side. But today, exclusively, we'll be talking about camps that are on the east side of the lake. It is just south of the Serengeti National Park, those of you that are familiar with the Serengeti. Um, here's just a quick snapshot of some of the foods. And we'll be talking about each of these in turn today before we get into um, how important they are for the diet. And one thing that I'd like to introduce before we actually get into the methods is that many studies of hunter-gatherer diets have been, um, up until very recently, largely anecdotal. The other issue is that you have um, very different methods being used both in the field and in the lab in order to measure this stuff. So you can have data that's reported in things like calories, kilocalories, kilojoules, um, wet weight kilograms, dry weight kilograms, right, which makes it, as you might imagine, very difficult to do any comparisons across populations. You also have difference in terms of nutritional um, laboratory methodology. So what's happening in the lab as you analyze these foods. Um, this is a problem for those of us that are trying to figure out what hunter-gatherer diets can tell us. So what I decided to do is um, go out and collect these foods and bring them back to the Nutritional Ecology Laboratory at Harvard University. And Dr. Rangham, who we'll be hearing from later today, um, and Nancy Luconklin-Britton very graciously allowed me to use the lab to analyze all of these wild foods. Um, no commercial nutrition lab in the US would take the samples when I was doing my dissertation work. So Dr. Rangham said, that's OK, bring them in. Um, and we did, and we found some, some very interesting results that we'll get into. So we're going to be talking about many different berry species, tuber species, which are underground storage organs. I always describe them. Um, they often get likened to a potato, but I find that they're much more similar to jicama. Um, or even a water chestnut, if that, if that helps. Although they're incredibly fibrous, um, which has interesting implications for microbiota and what's happening with all of the, the gut populations to break this stuff down. Baobab fruit, we'll be talking about honey. Um, figs are also a very important part of the diet, especially for children. Um, and legumes and nut species as well. And we'll get into meat, which includes a lot of avian species, which often get overlooked in a lot of dietary reconstructions. Birds are very important for most uh, hunter-gatherer populations, particularly subtropical foragers. So it's important to keep how, uh, birds in mind. So very quickly, going through different food sources, baobab fruit. This is what it looks like when you open it up. Um, it has a hard shell, and inside you have all of these um, very, you have seeds that are covered in kind of a chalky white powder. Baobab fruit is consumed in several different ways. Here we have a picture of a mother pounding baobab seeds. The most common way is to take, this, is to take the innards out, take a pounding rock, pound it into a powder, and then winnow, winnow the powder. So what that means is that you have access now to the lipid-rich seed inside. So once you winnow this powder, uh, what happens, they, they, use a, they use a piece of animal hide, is the seed husk floats away. So what you're left with is the fruit powder as well as the powder from the seed. Um, it can also be mixed with berry juice 
to make um, a Hadza smoothie, which is a really good weaning food. We have several different types um, of berry species. I just have three here, but there are about six species that are routinely consumed. Um, this is on a berry foray. I had one of my friends just show me the, the very small amount that she trotted home with to feed the three hungry mouths that were waiting, and then she came back to get a much bigger yield. Um, several different berry species. And tubers, um, tubers are pretty famous and they keep showing up in terms of many models of human evolution and, and models of the evolution of the human diet. The Hadza consume four species routinely. They're shown on this slide. And Equa, which is this species right, this species right here, um, is a, a very fibrous species and, and one um, that is, appears a lot in the literature um, as a very important tuber and a very important either staple part of the Hadza diet or a fallback food. There's still a lot of discussion on, on the role of tubers, but what we can agree on is that tubers do make an appearance routinely in a lot of these models, so they deserve our attention. One of the things that makes tubers so interesting is that they can often be buried um, up to four to five feet in the ground. So women, Hadza women tend to forage in groups. Hadza men hunt, uh, typically solo, sometimes in pairs. And um, tubers, as we now know, based on mounting evidence, can be consumed, uh, they can be collected throughout the year, both in the rainy season and in the dry season. And it's, it can be very back-breaking work, as you see here. And I love this photo because this woman has an, a sleeping infant on her back as she's practically uprooting a tree to get to a tuber. So I, don't, I still don't know how she stayed asleep. But here, this is what a typical tuber collection looks like. We will be getting back to the importance of fire, both in this talk and subsequent talks. Um, Hadza women tend to roast their tubers, and they do kind of a flash fire roasting. This is a tuber species called makalita. Um, that's the Hadza word for it. And they, they will roast them uh, typically for just a few minutes before they pull them off the fire to consume them. Honeycomb um, and bee larvae. So honey, liquid honey and bee larvae are a very important part of the Hadza diet. Honey, interestingly enough, is routinely ranked by men, women, and children as the number one Hadza food item. It ranks above meat. Um, so for many of the models of human evolution that, that place meat kind of as the pinnacle food, it's very interesting that to many foraging populations, honey is actually the number one food that they would like to consume. Um, Hadza men have a very interesting relationship with the honey guide bird, which I think we'll hear more about today from Dr. Rangham. Um, one of my favorite factoids about the honey guide bird is their Latin name is indicator indicator. And the Hadza have this great symbiotic relationship with this bird. The bird um, tweets, starts chattering and whistling to the Hadza honey guide, a Hadza honey hunter who's out foraging, and he will then respond back. So there's this series of chatters and whistles that goes back and forth until the bird leads the hunter to the hive. And they then hammer these pegs into the base of the tree. They climb up to the top. They smoke the hive. They hack into it first with an axe, which is very brutal, difficult work, smoke the hive, and then extract the honeycomb. They leave with their prize. And the honey guide bird, um, not to be forgotten, will feast on the wax and the bee carcasses. And they don't always smoke the hive, but they do routinely smoke the hive. Um, Hadza men say only, I, I asked a man during an interview last summer, and he said, well, only the really crazy ones will go after a big hive without smoking it. And this is what a really big hive looks like. So <laughs> um, that's, that's a lot of smoke needed for a very big hive. So you can see we're not talking about small amounts of honey. Um, depending on the region and depending on the season, we're talking about a lot of honey consumption. So it's a very important food. 
And we can't forget meat. Can't forget meat. Um, meat is also important in the Hadza diet. Okay, so let's get into the actual nutritional composition. So I took, I took food samples in the field. Um, I dried them. I took all their measurements. And then I dutifully carried them back to the laboratory um, and analyzed them for nutritional composition. So turns out honey ends up being low in protein and fat. We did not include larvae for permitting issues. Um, we're hoping to be able to um, amend that and collect larvae and actually take it out of the country. Because um, if you think about it, that's a very important component of honeycomb. Um, high in mono and disaccharides. Baobab is high in protein for the flour, um, fat in the seeds and fiber, and low in the mono and disaccharides. Berries are low in fat, relatively low in protein, um, and as we might have predicted, high in both mono and disaccharides. Legumes are high in protein and fiber, low in fat and sugar. And figs are high in fat, fiber, and mono and disaccharides, but low in protein. Droops are high in fat and protein and high in fiber and low in sugar. So what does this mean once we have all of this information, right? What does this mean? Um, so for many early studies looking at hunter-gatherer diets, what would happen is anthropologists would take measurements of food coming back into camp. So they would look at wet weight. So you would basically measure the weight of the food coming back in, and then you'd get proportionality studies. So you'd say, okay, the weight, we have this much weight of meat versus this much weight of tubers versus this much weight of berries, right? which is interesting in terms of proportionality, um, but not helpful when we're thinking about energetic contribution to the diet. Not helpful when we're thinking about particular, uh, both micro and macronutrients. So what we need to do is get energetic value so that we can find out what these foods are telling us. So if you have a kilogram of meat and a kilogram of figs, you're not talking about the same food, right? You're simply reporting weight. So I decided, okay, we need to get in there and actually find, um, find the nutritional value. There were several previous studies done on Hadza diet, and this one was a very, uh, it was, we decided that it actually turned out to be fantastic because we used the new um, methods and we came up with values that were actually um, kind of right in range of the previous values. So you can see honey, baobab, berries, figs, legumes, and tubers. So what does the Hadza diet look like? So total calories, you can see here, this is what it looks like for the year. And before I wind down, I want to show you what the seasonal differences look like, because this is where it's really interesting and something that often gets left out of many models of human evolution. So if you look at total kilocalories by food type, you see purchased, meat, honey, fruits, nuts, legumes, and tubers. If you go by season, you see we have, in the wet season, a lot more plant matter being consumed as opposed to the dry season, where you have a lot more meat being consumed as everybody, including animals, is hovering around the watering holes, which makes them easier to hunt. So what this means um, for models of human evolution when we're looking at hunter-gatherer diets is we need to be much more inclusive. So we need to start looking at greater dietary breadth. It is not just about meat versus tubers, um, we also need to include many other different types of foods when we're thinking about this. And this is one take-home message from the Hadza and hunter-gatherer diets in general, is to really pay attention to local ecological variability and what this means in terms of being omnivores. Thank you. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.